and welcome to the second episode of The Crit. My name is Christina Rapatsky. And my name is Ollie Stratford. It's lovely to be back with you all. How are you, Ollie? I'm all right. I'm I'm happy to be back. Uh, happy we haven't been cancelled in the intervening two weeks. And we're ready to run a rule over what's been going on in design. Nothing escapes our notice, unless you don't email us about it. In which case, it probably escapes our notice. We will provide an email at the end of the episode, such that we can avoid this situation. Shall we get cracking? So, the first bit of design news that caught my eye this week is the announcement that Piero Lissoni, the Italian architect and designer, has been appointed the new artistic director of B&B Italia. Now, that role of the creative director and the artistic director is always a little bit ill-defined, I think. It seems to vary from company to company what that figure is actually doing. But Lissoni said he's going to be responsible for the visual identity and stylistic code of the brand. So read into that what you will. I, th- I think it's probably a safe bet to say he'll be be looking at um, how B&B Italia appears, all of its sort of presentation, and probably overseeing the design side as well, or the actual creation of new collections and so he's on. He's already done some work with B&B Italia, hasn't he? I think they've collaborated since 2017, but uh, this is a step up in terms of the role and the involvement. He's in the big chair. <laughs> he's, he's a big fish and B&B Italia now, but he's also creative director of a number of other design companies quite a few actually he's um so he's also still creative director for alpi boffi living divani lemma lualdi porro and san lorenzo so he's a busy guy and i mean he also designs for brands like capellini alessi floss de padova cartel this is not necessarily unusual for a designer to oversee a number of different brands and to work with them but I think I think this is slightly noteworthy for the sheer number. I mean, that's that's a colossal amount of responsibility for that many companies to be under the creative aegis of one man. I suppose it's something that's already been happening for a while in the fashion industry, where you get these heritage brands that take on creative directors that are also involved in lots of other uh, fashion houses. But... Would you agree, Ollie, that it's maybe something of a, it's it's a more recent development in the design industry, in particular in the Italian design industry, which used to operate in the twentieth century under a, a different model, a kind of family-owned business model, whereas now we're moving into something slightly different. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think what you see this rise in the significance of the creative director probably is a reaction to the breakdown of that family model. So B&B Italia is is coming off the back of quite a tumultuous period, actually. It was acquired by um, a group, Invest Industrial, in 2015. And then in 2018, it became one of the founding members of this design holding group with Floss and Louis Paulson. It used to be under the control of... Um, Oh, I'm going to have to find his name. The Busnelli family. <laughs> the Busnelli family. Giorgio Busnelli. So Giorgio Busnelli is the son of Piero Busnelli, who founded B&B and sort of put it on the map. In the 60s, we should add. 66, I think yeah, it was founded. Exa- founded. Exactly. And it, it had an amazing legacy. It, it was a real pioneer in um, cold polyurethane foam moulding. So a big player in furniture design in that 
century. And then it, it stayed under the Busnelli family for decades. Busnelli finally left last year in 2019. So I suppose Lissoni is being brought in to sort of provide that direction and leadership at the top, which maybe has been lacking a little bit since that departure and since all of this tumult. Um, did you pronounce it tumult? <laughs> tumult? I've lost tumult. all confidence in it. Tumult? It's something is tumultuous. Um, yeah. But just a singular t- tumult. tumult. It doesn't even sound like a name. It doesn't sound right. Anyway. Okay. I, I... Should we move past this? <laughs> we should. Um, <laughs> and I suppose the important thing is B&B's recent history isn't unusual to have these changes in ownership. Same thing happened with Floss, the lighting company, which was under the Gandini family and for a long time under the leadership of Piero Gandini, who um, who similarly left uh, the company not so long ago, 2019, I think, citing different strategic and management views to the rest of the design holding group. So I, I think Lissoni, in a, in a way, is a reaction to that instability. And, and maybe he's, he's an old hand in design. He's worked for a number of companies. He knows what he's doing. Maybe he's seen as a safe pair of hands who can sort of steady that ship and get things uh, running. Yeah, I don't know if there's that much to say in terms of a wider analysis of it. I think the main story here is actually that, for better or worse, the business landscape has been changing for uh, uh, the last, what, 20 years or so. And this kind of appointment is just one kind of symptom of of, uh, a wider structural change in the industry. So the next story we have is about food design, and it's quite a big story actually, a world first, uh, which is that Singapore's food agency has approved lab-grown meat for consumption. In particular, it's a type of cultured chicken, which kind of makes me smile because I get an image of a, like a chicken with a, with a monocle. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but <laughs> he loves the opera has a huge yeah. number of Vivaldi records um he the chicken looks down its nose at television and all pop culture exactly the other term that's used for it is cultivated chicken but it evokes the exact same picture but it's, it's lab grown meat uh grown in a bioreactor which doesn't involve killing a chicken yeah exactly uh, and this is the world's first uh, food agency to approve this so it means that it will be rolled out in, in small batches in i think it's just one singapore restaurant at the moment yeah it's a small start but it is an important story i think everyone is familiar with the problems which attach themselves to the meat industry both in terms of its environmental impact, it's a huge producer of greenhouse gases, for instance, uh, takes up an awful lot of land use, and also animal welfare. So massive implications around that, the number of animals which are slaughtered for the meat industry. So the idea of being able to produce meat, being able to produce cheap protein without uh, without the need to kill animals and without uh, hopefully some of those environmental costs, is is potentially a massive breakthrough. I mean, we're a long way off this replacing uh, the meat industry status quo, but it's an early encouraging step. Yeah, and there's lots of companies that have been working in the last few years to produce cruelty-free meat grown in a lab with the help of bioreactors. This one that's just been approved is called Eat Just, but there's also uh, Memphis Meats and Mosa Meats and... 
Yeah, there's another one called Super Meat, which operates a test restaurant called uh, The Chicken in Tel Aviv, which is quite pleasing, and they do free public tastings. So I think you go in and you sign various waivers saying you won't sue if you suffer extraordinary food poisoning from lab chicken. Uh, And in exchange, you get to eat these prototype nuggets. Yeah, but the thing is, I think one of the arguments is also that there's better... It's it's more hygienic uh, with lab-grown meat because you don't have all the uh, potential sources of contamination that you get on industrial farms. And you don't have the antibiotics pumped in either. No, I mean, there's lots, there's lots of positives. And obviously combined with other plant-based alternatives to eating meat, this is an exciting prospect and, the, and the, a future in which we are le- eating less meat as a society is going to you know, involve, I suppose, a combination of both this type of lab-grown protein and other sources of protein. Um, but I was just going to say a short thing about the, the, the cost. When the first cultured beef burger was made in 2013, it cost just over £220,000 to, to make. And that has now dropped considerably, such that you can buy these chicken nuggets in a Singapore restaurant, and it will be slightly more expensive than uh, chicken, the conventional chicken, let's say, but uh, it's still kind of a manageable cost. Yeah, it's extraordinary progress, and it's a story I'm personally quite interested in because I follow a vegan diet. I've never eaten meat, or as as long as I can remember, I've never eaten meat. Uh, so this is quite an exciting breakthrough. I have to say, it doesn't hugely appeal to me. I have no real desire to eat meat, even if it hasn't been slaughtered. But for a lot of people, I think this would really work. My understanding, however, though, is that the process is not yet fully vegan, right? Yes. There is still animal slaughter involved in the slaughterless chicken. You don't need to slaughter a chicken for these crispy chicken bites. But with the current technology that's being used, it seems that you do need a serum, which is used to grow the meat, which is derived from the fetal blood of a calf. And the way you extract that fetal blood is basically slaughtering a pregnant cow and the fetus. It's the stuff of nightmares. Yeah. It's like the trolley problem in philosophy. Would you save five chickens in exchange for slitting open a fetal calf and draining it oh, of all God. its blood? Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a horrible trade-off. I think they are working to improve that. So they're hoping that the nutrient serum in which the chicken will be grown in the next batch will be fully vegetable-based. I think it's the fact that the regulatory process for Singapore had to start a couple of years ago where the technology wasn't where it is today. So hopefully it won't be too long before it is fully vegan. I mean... This is one of the interesting things about veganism, though, I suppose, of where do you draw the line? Because lots of lots of products out there don't involve you eating meat, but will have featured animal death at some point in their supply chain. So this this is a particularly vivid, <laughs> grisly, <Yeah. laughs> calf-slaughtering example of that. Yeah, the thing with this, it's called fetal bovine serum, FBS, is that it, it is in the industry, as I understand it, a kind of miracle juice, they call it. 
it's because it has all the nutrients in it that will help cell growth and that it is proving quite, although there's com- companies are working really hard to find a plant-based alternative for this type of serum, then it's just something about that particular serum is, is the thing that help that is most efficient at growing this, this type of meat. Anyway, this is all very interesting uh, and something we will, we will follow. It's important to think about food design as we've seen in the last years in the design industry, we've had an increasing number of designers working within this field, we've had more institutional recognition of the work that these designers are doing in the food industry. Uh, you know, the Impossible Burger, for instance, is currently uh, nominated as the Beasley Design of the Year for 2019 at the Design Museum. And there's been an exhibitions at the V&A, for instance, about food design uh, in recent years. So, yeah, this is a topic that is well worth following. Yeah, I think it's most interesting in terms of how it flags up that our food systems and food products are designed. There are choices which go into them. Food design is obviously a growing area within the field, but for a number of years, food design has been quite gallery-based. Some amazing practitioners working on it, I think Maria Vogelzang, Marty Guichet, for example, real pioneers in that field, but very much doing these kind of provocative, um, almost more art installation pieces. What's quite exciting, I guess, is that this story raises awareness that industrial food products are designed and that there might be ways of doing them better. So they have a lower impact environmentally, such that they result in less cruelty, and maybe we can stop killing calves and uh, bathing our chicken in their blood to make it more delicious. So from a story that was quite hopeful and suggestive of a potentially brighter future, we move into the realm of depressing news. This is Architects Declare, a sort of environmental uh, climate body within architecture that was founded in May 2019 to great fanfare. A lot of leading practices like David Chipperfield Architects, Alison Brooke Architects, Foster and Partner Zaha Hadid all signed up to it. And the idea was that architecture was going to start taking climate change seriously. So they would commit to a number of actions within these practices, basically to think about their profession's impact on the world and how they could do things better and be a little bit more sustainable. And then this month, it all collapsed in a great fireball of um, greenhouse gases <laughs> burning through the atmosphere, scorching the fields. Um, it, it's, it's, been a, it's been a disastrous week. Uh, Christina, do you want to explain what happened? Yeah, it, it hasn't quite sort of collapsed, but uh, two of the founding members and two of the biggest uh, architectural practices, Zaha Hadid Architects and uh, Foster and Partners have pulled out. Foster and Partners pulled out first and then Zaha Hadid Architects followed, I think, a day later. Yeah, very soon after. For slightly different reasons that we'll go into. So Foster and Partners had been criticised for some time for being a founding member of Architects Declare, but also conducting a number of projects that would be considered not in keeping with the commitments that Architects Declare put out. Uh, and a, a, a main one being, uh, being a project in the aviation sector, which for obvious reasons is problematic from, a, from an emissions perspective but which Foster and Partners have defended, saying that this is, uh, in fact, a sector that we need to look at creatively and through a sustainable perspective because it's not going to go 
away. Although judging from last year, this last year, I mean, it is kind of going away. Yeah, that practice has worked in airports for a long time. I mean, they've done the airports in Beijing, Stansted, Hong Kong, Kuwait. They have a number of existing airport projects they're working on at the moment, including a couple of private airports uh, at luxury resorts in the Red Sea and Amala. And this seems to have been the tipping point for Foster and Partners in terms of architects declare. Norman Foster, I think he wrote the statement personally, which, you know, suggests it's it's something that practice is very keen to hammer home. And they said, since our founding in 1967, we have pioneered a green agenda and believe that aviation, like any other sector, needs the most sustainable infrastructure to fulfil its purpose. And it kind of goes on like that. This defence that aviation isn't going to go away, that aviation is important, and they would like to work from within that industry to change it. Now, it's it's probably true that aviation is important and isn't going to go away. I think you have a stronger claim to be working to change it, perhaps if you're doing a huge airport that's going to serve uh, millions of people rather than these sort of luxury airports, which coincidentally are huge contributors to emissions. I think there's a study which... Um, I'm just going to bring up the exact figure because I think it's really important... Yeah, there's a study from Linnaeus University in Sweden suggesting that just 1% of the world's population is responsible for half of all carbon emissions caused by aviation in 2018. So it's a sad one because it seems as if Foster and Partners are very much wanting to carry on with business as normal and keep working in that aviation sector. And I don't deny they they probably are improving things from within that. I think the issue is that Architects declare, and I would agree with them, would say that sector needs serious overhaul. It doesn't just need this slow, steady improvement. So it's quite sad, really. Zaha Hadid Architects, on the other hand, there's not a kind of specific project that has proved problematic. I think it's just a kind of difference uh, of opinion on how to interpret the commit. (laughs) Sorry, it's a very diplomatic way of putting it. There's a difference of opinion on how to interpret the commitments that architects declare or put forward. Uh, Patrick Schumacher, partner uh, of Sarah Hadid Architects. Partner, edgelord, bull in a china shop. Architecture's very own edgelord. Has made statements in the past to do with continuous growth being necessary to bring about the technological changes and investment, technological investment that we would need in order to tackle climate change. And architects declare, I feel that this is not at all in keeping with current environmentalist thinking. Yeah, it's always hard to tell with Patrick Schumacher and uh, Zaha Hadid architects because he is such an edgelord and seems to take so much pleasure from owning the libs or however he sees it. It's quite difficult sometimes to know what he's actually committed to, but he seems to he seems to have this view that we need to continually drive growth, prosperity, and as a result, more money will go into science and research, and that's what is going to overcome climate collapse. Now that's very different to architects declare who I think feel we need to scale back and need to make real changes now. So they were always going to clash and I think the tipping point came a little while ago 
architects declare put out a, a pretty thinly veiled um, statement saying all founding members needed to abide by the rules. But I mean, it, it practically said Patrick Schumacher in square brackets after all architects. <laughs> yeah. So they've been they've been heading towards this breakup for a while. Yeah, yeah. It's a pity because it because of his public persona, this conversation, which I think does need to happen, it gets very polarised because there are people who are thinking seriously about the environmental crisis who are also talking about like we, like there is there are these huge technological challenges that need enormous investment you know like how are we going to transition to fully renewable energy it's just like it is a, it is a technical uh, sorry a technological challenge that is going to need an incredible amount of investment uh, on, a, on a massive massive scale and then there's this other end of the environmentalist movement that is much more austere really in its approach to kind of scaling back and treading lightly on the earth which is also a serious and very important aspect of what needs to happen but yeah this the rift between those two parts of the movement is like it's a it's it's becoming more and more of a gulf i feel and like this development with architects declare just seems kind of symptomatic of a of a larger tendency in the movement Uh, and those are kind of tearing each other in opposite directions rather than working together they are difficult conversations and difficult decisions to make about how to improve this situation. And I think one of the real shames with this is in the past, architecture has seemingly gone in for a hell of a lot of greenwashing. So you'll have a practice proudly announce its new uh, coal power station, which is going to be fine because they've stuck some solar panels on the silo. I think when Architects Declare launched, what seemed exciting was potentially practices were finally going to knuckle down and take this seriously and have some of those conversations and start speaking about it. Now, without working in aviation and all of those things, I'm not an expert on the field. Who knows? Maybe Foster and Partners and Zaha Hadid have some points, as you say. I don't know. It's not my way of thinking about it, but who can say for sure? But it does add to this impression that really Architects Declare was a little bit of a front of putting up a good face and saying, we're going to tackle climate change. We're going to do something about this. This really matters. And then the moment someone goes, "Mm, maybe we should stop designing some of these lucrative projects, which possibly aren't great. Everyone goes, whoa, wait, that's what we committed to. No, I'm not going to stop doing the airports. Are you mad? It's that's what's so sad about it. Like, even if they have a point and who knows, they they do give the impression that they're they're really just paying lip service and carrying on. It it feels desperately sad all round. Okay, so I don't think anyone has missed the fact that uh, in the UK, the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Authority has approved the Pfizer and BioNTech vaccine for COVID-19, making it the first country in the world to start rolling out the vaccine. Today, which is 8th of December, is has been dubbed V-Day for Vaccination Day. Today has been the first day that the vaccines have been uh, administered to primarily in this first round of the rollout, frontline health staff, the over 80s and care home workers. The reason we're thinking about it in a design context is that it's 
it's a it's a huge logistical challenge. Yeah, so this is a vaccine which is produced in Belgium and then needs to travel from Belgium into the UK through distribution centres and then make its way all around the country into hospitals, into care homes, whilst being kept at very, very cold temperatures. Otherwise, it ceases to be effective. How, how, how cold? I think it's, well, it's something like minus 70 degrees Celsius. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, I think so. That's very cold. That's, it's too yeah, cold. Yeah, scarf weather. For sure. Yeah. Um, so that's that's a huge thing and a massive organisational issue. And I'm sure there will be... Uh, exciting appointments to enable that, like Matt Hancock as Sheriff of Wagons or Dido Harding as Lord Mayor of Refrigeration. Um, Uh, Also, the fact that Pfizer's European manufacturing plant is in Belgium, in Pers, or Pors, not sure how to pronounce it. Beautiful Pors. Beautiful Pors. (laughs) Means that the vaccine, which has hitherto been shipped to the UK, has gone through the Eurotunnel. And we're also currently in the final stages, really 11th hour of Brexit negotiations, where the <laughs> the Eurotunnel and the um, logistical gridlocks that are potentially going to be caused by a no deal Brexit is, a, you know, is, is at the front of everyone's minds. Or maybe not at the front of everyone's minds, actually. It's kind of, people aren't really talking about this as much as they should, but... Yeah, this is all imminent. And if we're going to have more vaccines being transported through the Eurotunnel and then distributed across the United Kingdom, and there's going to be huge gridlocks in Kent, you're introducing this huge margin of error in terms of the ultra cold chain. Yeah, it's very frightening. I think the Brexit negotiations are nothing but hiccups and misunderstandings and incompetencies and issues. So you can imagine a situation in which the vaccine is just stuck in that lorry park in Kent. I mean, I wonder how they will solve it. There's been some talk of using, utilising non-commercial flights, actually, which seems weird that, you know, you have to fly it over from Belgium, which is like just next door. But that is, I mean, that is maybe one of the ways in which they might solve this. Yeah, we'll see. The other thing I want to talk about just in terms of the like materials angle of this story is looking at things like dry ice. Like who makes dry ice and how is it made? You know, you need a lot of uh, carbon dioxide, for example, to produce dry ice. And there was a shortage of carbon dioxide earlier in the year. There is also pharmaceutical borosilicate glass, which is used for vials. It's borosilicate is like a type of glass that can withstand extreme temperatures and still stay sterile. And the world's major manufacturers of borosilicate glass are now working hard to create enough borosilicate glass for 4 billion vials. Where do do they make it? Let me just bring up this. The German company Schott. Not sort of Murano or something. (laughs) No. That's a shame. That would have been such a pretty vaccine vial. Um, No, there's a German company called Schott. Like a shot glass? (laughs) Not like a shot glass or like a flu jab. Uh Uh, Schott with a C. -C S-C-H-O-T-T. There's an Italian company called Stevanato. Stevanato Group. And they both have said that they're producing enough borosilicate for two billion vaccinations each. So that's a lot of borosilicate glass being produced. There's also an American company called uh, Corning, 
which uh, is developing a type of glass called valor glass. Mm, very impressive. Which is apparently even even better than borosilicate. I don't know, even stronger, even more <laughs> sterile. I, I don't know. <laughs> and that's had like hu- a huge um, investment from the US government to keep on developing that. So all of these companies are kind of making reassuring sounds about like, you know, there will be enough glass, there will be enough dry ice, there will be enough refrigerators uh, and that sort of thing. But the thing that I think was telling when Pfizer announced its big news is that they initially had a projection that they would be able to basically roll out a hundred, was it a hundred million doses this year before the end of 2020? And then they very quickly scaled that back and halved it, halved that projection such that they're now producing 50 million doses by the end of the year. And the reason they cited mm. for that was that their supply chain materials didn't meet the the standards that they needed to. And they didn't specify which materials, but that was basically, that was the hurdle. So this weekend, I sunk a little bit of time into playing Afterworld, The Age of Tomorrow, which is a new video game developed by Balenciaga. Video game kind of in inverted commas. It's a digital environment that the house has produced to show its Autumn Winter 21 collection. And it's a really interesting initiative because for so long, Fashion collections have worked upon these huge, grand, in-person shows. I think Chanel are notorious for the endlessly baroque, vast pieces of set design they do. But under the pandemic, with physical distancing, suddenly these shows have become impossible, or at least very difficult to do. Or also, and probably more importantly suddenly not very alluring. So much of fashion works upon this idea of it being alluring and luxury and maybe a little bit decadent. And now being crammed in a room with people watching models walk very close to you is a lot of people's worst nightmares. So Balenciaga creating a video game to show the collection is a really interesting move. I'm so glad you're back to talk about video games, Ollie. In the last episode, we talked about video games and how it's an, an area of design that we should pay more attention to. And you've just been vindicated by Balenciaga launching this... Uh, yeah, it's, it's like a virtual show space, but it also really taps into some very recognisable tropes from video games. Should we chat about some of these tropes that they've employed? Yeah, so the lookbook, for instance, the models have been posed in what uh, Balenciaga's creative director, Demna Gavasalia, said were couture poses, but they've ended up looking <laughs> like the character select screen on a beat-em-up game, for instance. And it, it's quite fun. It, it leans into that video game language. So it's this sort of near-future, slightly cyberpunkish city which you wander through. I think the thing I find interesting about it is it's not a video game. Mm. You can't actually do many video game things in it. You don't play it. Yeah, you just sort of follow a path through. And I think it's nice because Balenciaga seemed to have got that balance right. I think it could be quite naff if you were playing Balenciaga the video game and you had to like, I don't know, go and collect shoes or materials or something. That wouldn't be fun. What they've done, however, is look at some of the infrastructure around video games. What are video games good at? Creating interesting digital environments. And then thought, 
that would be a really good place to do a fashion show collection. I think it's a I think it's an interesting move and it seems quite far ahead of what other people in the industry are doing. So I know Chanel rented a French chateau, a ballroom and took 300 people there to do a fashion show. No guests, they just recorded it all. And their CEO, their president of fashion share said Uh, We don't see any other way to talk about the collections other than having a show. We need to have impactful events to maintain a strong bond with our audience. Our non-existent audience. (laughs) Our non-existent audience who really want a French chateau. But I think that seems somehow so dated and like a little bit silly and out of step with what people are doing. Whereas I think one thing that Demlega Vesalia are quite good at is reading the room and reading the sort of zeitgeist and people don't want to go to a show it's it's kind of weird a few other brands have done outdoor shows I think Jacquemus made people stand in a wheat field for instance maybe that would be quite nice uh, but he loves it he loves a good field doesn't he <laughs> he loves the southern French field but I think the video game feels very of this moment and like an intelligent response which is fun, it's a little bit different, it's a nice way to show the collection and also, I mean, it's still a luxury house, it's still exclusive, but more people can play this, can go and get close to the collection and see some of the work that's gone into it than you traditionally get with these shows. I I think they're to be applauded for it. And so we come to our product and project roundup for the week. Yay! New things happening in design, which you can buy or see. Um, (laughs) Sorry, I don't know. I'm just making enthusiastic sounds. Well, they, they, they hype it up, which is nice. It's like the hype man. The first one we want to look at is Ensemble, which is a relatively new um, venture. It was set up by the designer Livia Lauber and grew out of her earlier studio, uh, Loris and Livia. Livia has created a number of products, uh, both that she's designed herself and which external designers have created, and which are then produced by craftspeople around Europe. So the idea is what happens when you pair experimental designers with expert artisanal craftspeople to create lo-fi objects. Yeah, it's also kind of small batch production, right? So she'll do a project as and when and it will come out in a small edition and she's not like pumping out new things just for the sake of newness but uh, each each uh, series or object is very carefully considered and often has like a kind of twinkle in the eye to it like sometimes it's humor it's actually fully humorous without being gimmicky you know and sometimes it's just a kind of little it's got a little twist. They're rye objects. They're rye objects. That's a good word for it. They're rye objects. I think one of my favourite things, which is new, is the iBeam series, which is a series of uh, candle holders. And uh, they're, they're, they're made from a section bar that if you take a cross section of it, it looks like a serif capital R, letter I. And they're then drilled to create the holes for the candles. And it's just a really, really simple idea. And I also love the fact that it's, well, I think it's a, it's a, it's a kind of nod to, a, to a, the design history of this particular type of beam, which was used, again, in quite a wry way by the late, great Enzo Mari and with his uh, putrella dishes that he made for uh, Danese. 
in the 50s, which is that I-beam that is lying down and curved at uh, either side to create a kind of tray or a vessel. And again, so simple, um, but so brilliant. Yeah, and it's it's quite witty as well, because I think candle holders are often slightly fussy, uh, delicate, exquisite objects. And Silo Studio have just plonked this kind of industrial leftover on the table and then jammed a taper candle in it. And it works really well. It feels very contemporary and, and, and an interesting use of that format. The other piece which Ensemble have just launched, um, this is by Livia, actually, uh, which is the Taverna Carafe. It's inspired by, I'm going to pronounce it incorrectly, but Oinometras. Uh, I think Oinometras, which are aluminium cups you find in Greek tavernas. And they have different colours and one's the water, one is oil, one is red wine. And Livia's executed them in your friend and mine, borosilica <laughs> glass. And again, they're not, they're not trying to be... Um, anything more than just very well-made, functional, charming objects. And it's it's a really lovely collection. I'd recommend people take a look at it. The other thing we want to talk about is an exhibition that has just opened in Tokyo, which is all about Dieter Rams and his work for Vitsu and Brown. Yeah, so this is Less But Better, and it's in the Isotan Shinjuku store in Tokyo. And it's been put together by System Studio and Peter Kapos, who's a real expert in Rams's work. And they're displaying some of Rams's classic pieces for Vitsu and Brahm, but also um, a couple of lesser known objects. And I think the idea is to show how cohesive Rams's work was, how much it really all fits together and sort of flowed from a single ethos and aesthetic. I think it's safe to say that Rams is one of the most influential industrial designers of the the late 20th century, uh, just in terms of the impact he's had on product design well into the 21st century. So if you look at, you know, the T3 transistor radio that he did for Braun and compare that with Johnny Ives' iPod design, it's clear that they're kind of not even cousins, they're like siblings <laughs> in terms of their design language yeah i think he's beloved by designers he's very much a designer's designer and i think the work he's produced is hugely admired i think a lot of it also comes to the idea that he is seen as being somewhat prescient so he's someone who back in the 70s is talking about the need for uh long lifespans for objects about the need for sustainability and he links all of this together so he sees aesthetic and sustainability is going hand in hand. You kind of can't have one without the other. So he, from an early time, is putting forward, in almost quite messianic terms, actually, this very holistic design. And that really resonates now. Um, His idea of less but better, I mean, the title of the exhibition could be the watchword, which really the industry wants to be following now. I think it's certainly cultivated by the fact that he's quite a reclusive man. He doesn't give many interviews and this aura of mystique has grown up around him, which I think feeds into it somewhat. But I mean, he's had an, he has an amazing career. He's also really distanced himself from the design industry as it's become, as it's turned out in the 21st century, because I think he's become a disillusioned with the attendant problems for the very reasons that you set out, Ollie. Uh, you know, he is—he was committed to 
uh, environmentally friendly design, long-lasting design objects from, you know, a time when that wasn't even discussed. Yeah, I think some of this is set out really well in Gary Hustwit's recent documentary, Rams, which has has definitely introduced a lot of people to Dieter Rams's work and has fueled some of this interest. I think there is a slightly tragic element almost to Dieter Rams because he produced such astonishing work and people see it and love it. But what they love always is just the aesthetic. So they look at those old radio and consumer electronics pieces and go, wow, it's so minimalist. It's like Apple before Apple. Isn't that great? And of course, Rams, the aesthetic really mattered to him. That was important, but it was always yoked to this wider ethos. And I think he seems to feel a sense of disappointment that his influence seems to have filtered through largely in terms of this minimalist aesthetic, but divorced from some of the thinking that went into it. And that's so sad because for him, it clearly was vital that it all go together. And I think hopefully this exhibition will show that. I mean, Peter really is one of the great experts in Rams. And and if anyone can do justice to him, it's Peter Kapos. So it's, it's worth checking out if you're in Tokyo. Yeah, I should just want to add to that uh, and again, maybe sing, sing Peter's praises a bit more because he curated an exhibition in 2016 here in London at Raven Row Gallery uh, called The Ulm Model, which is in part about the Rams aesthetic that we've just talked about. But it also looked at, uh, well, it primarily looked at the Ulm School of Industrial Design, which was founded by the Swiss designer Max Bill just after Second World War as a kind of inheritor to the Bauhaus, and which produced through its teaching culture and its relationship between student work and industry, produced the environment in which Rams and his colleagues at Braun worked and were able to create that type of work. Because Rams is very often he's he's kind of he's lionized and he's really he's worshipped and has become a total poster child for a certain aesthetic and for that kind of period in German industrial design but there he didn't emerge out of nothing you know there was this whole rich context uh, that he came out of and that we would do well to look at now that the European Union is looking to establish a new Bauhaus third Bauhaus that we would do well to look at again. And so I would also really, if people are interested in Rams and uh, post-war German industrial design, then I would uh, also encourage people to look back at some of the material material around that show uh, and, the, uh, and the little catalogue pamphlet that Peter wrote for it. It's really, really good. The final area we're going to look at today is design education. Um, Over the course of the pandemic, obviously, face-to-face tuition and schools have been extremely squeezed. It's been very difficult to run classes as normal. And what we've started to see are a number of online initiatives. Now, online learning is nothing new, but there does seem to have been a proliferation of platforms out there trying to offer design education and design classes to students. A couple of ones which have flagged up recently to us, the platform called Nerdaby, which offers online pre-recorded courses focused around design. Uh, Sebastian Byrne, a London-based designer, set up the Creative Skills Network, where uh, emerging young designers can get mentorship from practitioners like Peter Marigold, Fernando Lapos, Tomoko Azumi. 
and also Glithero, another London design studio, are also running online classes. It's it's an interesting development just because over the past year, it's almost been an accelerator program for this type of thing. There have been so many more of these springing up. And one thing which is nice about online is you can quickly adapt. So you can adjust the classes as you're going along. You get very rapid feedback, which is a little bit different to having to work through the bureaucracy of a formal physical course and school. So I'm quite excited to see where we'll be at the end of this period with these classes, what might come from them. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the people I know who work in academia and teach design um, at a university level, obviously they've all had to transition to online teaching in the last year and many of them are saying that it's, you know, it's just not the same. You don't have that one-on-one -on -one interaction with students and particularly when it comes to more kind of crafts and skills-based uh, types of design than it's just, it's it's very, very difficult. So it's interesting to see all of these springing up now. Um, I wonder if there's going to be a bounce back in terms of people just really craving that one-on-one -on -one interaction and physical skills-based learning. Oh, I'm sure. I think, I think even the people running these courses would say it clearly can't replace uh, mm. traditional design teaching and so on. I think what's interesting is in this period where it's enforced basically that we have to learn in this way can these courses carve a role for themselves which is complementary can mm. they find a purpose where they can offer something in addition to traditional design education so that that's going to be the thing to find out i think all right that's it for the second episode of the crit we're designed out we're critted out there's nothing else in design this week we need to wait until design can build up more content which will be well actually in about a week's time rather than a fortnight because we're doing a kind of end of year review next week we are so we'll be looking back over the year it's been an uneventful year so we'll have little to talk about but please do join us anyway in the meantime, please stay in touch with us over social media. We are at The Crit Design on Twitter and at The Crit Podcast on Instagram. You can also get in touch with us over email. We are on thecrit at desenyomagazine.com. If you want to find out how to spell Desenio, you can just look it up. This episode was produced by Evie Hall and edited by Christina Rapatsky. Our theme music was designed by Yori Suzuki and Team Suzuki at Pentagram. Pentagram.